Aloha. My name is Andrea, and I'm the host for State of Aloha, a podcast that dives deep into Hawaiian history and culture through expert interviews and personal anecdotes to explore Hawaii beyond what is shown on mainstream media. If you are Hawaiian, love Hawaii, or just enjoy learning about history and culture, join me on this adventure of discovery by subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For this week's episode, I spoke to one of my kumuhula, Homaikai Gawi, who founded and runs Kehaulani Hula Studio. When I say hula, I think the image that people get is, you know, a very beautiful young woman who is in a grass skirt and, and a coconut bra. It's someone's interpretation of our culture. And I always share with people, you know, no matter what culture you come from, share that. Share the knowledge that you have. So that, that way your kids or grandkids have something to compare. Yeah, especially for us that live on the continent. Sometimes our kids are so removed that they have no idea. Even though they're Hawaiian or they may be Filipino, they may be Japanese. The culture is not a focus. It's survival. Yeah, we survive first and then maybe we'll think about our culture. In my conversation with Anakala Pomaikai, we talk about his journey to becoming a kumuhula the importance and responsibility of hula, and how to incorporate hula every day in your life. A quick disclaimer before we begin, by no means does our conversation cover every aspect of hula, but rather it should whet your appetite for knowledge. Nanaike kumu, a phrase that I've said several times, which again is a Hawaiian proverb that means to seek the source. And for those of you who may be just joining us, a friendly reminder that the word kumu is the Hawaiian word that is translated into both source and teacher. It is important to remember this Hawaiian proverb, especially as we continue our journey of discovery, we must always remember to look to the source. You know, it's funny, every time I hear the story, of course I'm telling it, but um, it, it, things happen for a reason, I guess. And um, when I was in the, the seventh grade, uh, in Hawaii, we celebrated May Day on the 1st of May every year. And we always had a, a royal court that was made up of the different grades. And of course, sixth grade, you had the king and queen uh, that came along with kahili barriers and, and a chanter. In Hawaii, May 1st, or May Day, is also known as Lei Day. Traditionally, a day in which Hawaiians celebrate their culture by putting on hula performances, chanting oli, and of course, by wearing lei. And the chanter, I knew the chanter as my classmate and a good friend. But when he started doing these, these words, that had no accompaniment to him. I kept thinking, what is he doing? You know, he kind of sounded a little whiny, kind of sounded a little this, kind of sounded a little that. So I would mimic everything that he did. And sitting on the sidelines while they're practicing for the for the show and making fun of him. And you know, and afterwards he would tell me, why do why you do that? And I said, because bro, you sound funny. Chanting a Hawaiian oli is not just about memorization. Unlike performing a monologue, chanting an oli is more similar to singing a song. There are a variety of vocal techniques that someone must learn and master in order to chant an oli correctly. When it came that day of the show, Mrs. Felmet, who was our teacher for Hawaiian Studies, came and said, hey, I need you to do something for me. I said, okay. She says, take these, go in that room, and put this on, and come back. I said, what? <laughs> anyway, I come back. It's, it's the outfit that my friend Punahele is supposed to wear. And I'm thinking, um, you want me to help him? She goes, no, I want you to do the chant because he's sick. And I look at myself, oh, no, you got the wrong guy. You got the wrong guy. She goes, no, 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 no. 
I heard you making fun of him, teasing him every time he, we had practice. So now it's your turn. And so lo and behold, I, I went out there and did his, the only that he was to present. And I've never looked back. The same image that I brought up earlier of a young, attractive woman in a grass skirt and a coconut bra is also what came to mind for many people and still does. At the time that Anakala Pomaikai began his hula journey, this was a thought that also permeated the Hawaiian consciousness. Hula was regarded as something that only women did. For Anakala Pomaikai and the rest of the hula world, that mindset started to shift. Hula was, you know, it was a a female thing. So you hardly seen the the male dancers. So so when I when I started, you know, kind of looking into it more, um, it went beyond the labeling of, you know, if you dance hula, then you must be mahu. According to my copy of the New Pocket Hawaiian Dictionary by Mary Kavenak Pukui and Samuel H. Albert, mahu is directly translated as homosexual of either sex or a hermaphrodite. The modern usage of the word mahu extends beyond persons who identify as homosexual or gay. It is also used for those who feel other. And I do want to note, isn't necessarily something that was looked at as a negative thing in Hawaiian culture. Persons who were identified as mahu were often revered. The negative connotation surrounding the word was introduced with the missionaries. Uh, and you know, that was pretty much the top of the list. You dance hula? Oh yeah. You must be mahu. And, and I've always shied away from hula because of that comment. And so my interest was never there. And so after that May Day performance, it kind of piqued my interest because really nobody said anything about being mahu when I was, when, you know, they were going through their practices. Aside from us hackling at Punahele, you know, it, it was, that thought was never there. Yeah, the mentality itself about, you know, being mahu or, or you know, that impression that you might be is kind of, is changed, right, over yes. time. Yeah. Yes. For the better, we should say. For the that. better, yeah, definitely. After that, I started hanging around the, the Hawaiian group and learning dances. I, I got interested in the early 70s um, when Daryl Lupinui and Thaddeus Wilson and O'Brien Asselu were just starting with the men of Waimapuna. In the late 1970s, there was a second revival of Hawaiian culture. Concurrently, there is also a great loss of many kumuhula. A new generation of kumuhula rose to fill in the gap. Among the new elite were some of the names you just heard, Daryl Lupanui, Thaddeus Wilson, and O'Brien Oselu. Wilson and Oselu formed a group called Navai Eha Opuna, and Lupanui called his halau Waimapuna. So when I went and saw or watched groups, I finally saw men dancing, and that's when I saw uh, Daryl Lupanui and the men at Waimapuna, and, and I thought, wow. I mean, they were in things that are pretty skimpy, but wow, I've never seen men dance like that. I've always seen men dance hula awana, so it was always a softer side that I've seen. So I've never seen a ikaika looking, you know, from a man dancing hula. Ikaika is the Hawaiian word for strong or powerful. It also means strength, force, or energy. So yeah, I saw them at Iolani Park when the Kamehameha chant and hula competition was first held and I joined the halau and from there I went on to different halau ending up with the gentlemen of Maluikeo and Kumuhula Palanikahala. So it's, it's been a fun journey. It's been a learning journey. So all those things that we learned, you know, or I've learned or things that I maybe thought was funny or, you know, just like what are they doing are now things that I apply to, to my teaching. 
So those things I still hang on to, you know. And I and I I talk about Punahele today. Unfortunately, I have no idea where he is, but through him, you know, I I took on hula and and has carried that torch ever since. Punahele, wherever you are, if you're listening to this, let us know. Reach out. We want to hear the other side of this story too. It should be known that not every hula dancer goes on to become a kumuhula. Anakala Pomaikai tells us about how he made the transition from hula dancer to kumu. When I was doing the Waikiki hula scene, everything started to be a little bit fake, a little bit untrue to the culture. Um, and so I started to, you know, think there has to be a deeper meaning than what I'm doing. I mean, it's great, you know, take photos every night with everybody from around the world and do all these shows that has, um, you know, elaborate decorations or costuming and stuff. And that was great. But after a while, it's like, you know, it, it becomes a job. Um, and so taking the back seat to, to those things, I kind of looked again. What, what was the roots? What am I, what am I looking for? I'm going to say it one more time for the folks in the back. The Na Ikekumu. Seek the source. Um, and to break into the Waikiki scene, it was really hard because they were looking for a certain look. You know, the, the, the masculinity, you know, the, the, the abs and, and, you know, I, I don't have any of that. I can dance, but I didn't fit the, the look. So there are certain things that I did to, to kind of blend in, like be a comical hula dancer and that kind of got my foot in more doors um, and being able to do more shows because of the comical hula portion but then after that i was able to slide in other stuff you know and dance with the line and <laughs> be a part of everybody else and so i joined a halau and that was kumu uh palani kahala and his gentleman of malawikiao and and that satisfied or gave me things that i thought might have been there that i never got dancing in in a studio or in a entertainment setting it was pretty common for halaos to perform at local hotels in hawaii for tourists at this time in the 1980s hula and the image of a young woman in a grass skirt with a coconut bra was prominent in western commerce from mickey mouse strumming the slack key guitar and minnie in her grass skirt to hawaiian barbie to miss piggy to labels on sake and sugar the list goes on so joining kumupalani it kind of showed me a lot of stuff because as a dancer you're not only responsible for movement you're also responsible for creativity you're responsible for costuming you're responsible for lay making another common misconception about hula is that it's all about the dance if you listen to the second episode then you know that without olalo hawaii there would be no hula so not only is hula about the movements of the dancers it's about the words and also about the costuming in fact hula dancers are encouraged to nurture other skills adjacent to hula such as lay making or lomi lomi which is traditional hawaiian massage you're responsible for those little material that you need to make those things dyes corded you know kappa if we're using that what kind of kilohana are we going to have on our pa'u Hula dancers are not only responsible for the creation of their adornments, such as their lei, but they are also responsible for the proper disposal of said items. Oh yeah, yeah. And then, then you know, I also learned that you don't throw away things after performance or competition. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, we take care of those things again till the end. 
and and sort of you know that circle we started here we come around and then we end up at the same place again so all those things were always fascinating to me um so you know learning those little things don't throw it away because all those things have your sweat, your money, and you're just going to give it to somebody else. And, and all those little tidbits that come with hula. In the late 80s, Anakala Pomaikai funded his own halau with the blessing of his kumu, Frank Palani Kahala. But like many Hawaiians, he made the move to the mainland to seek new opportunities. 97, I had that, uh, aha. <laughs> because... It was our intent to move to the, the mainland and live like everybody else. Let's do the nine to five job, one job. <laughs> Let's enjoy family. And you know, we were bored. We would go to work, we'd come home and it's like, okay, now what? You know, I came from working three jobs, not seeing my kids uh, or seeing them in the, in the early morning hours and then coming home late at night and seeing them then. Never seen them playing, never seen them running around having to hear the stories of what happened. So when we moved to Utah, it was like, well, this is strange. There's nothing for us to do. Sheer boredom was not the only reason Anakala Pomaikai found himself coming back to Hula. After moving to the mainland, he started to see the distance that was created between his children and their culture. It, was, it wasn't to open the hello. It was more so that the kids had that connectivity still to Hawaii. And so from then, it, it just grew that other people heard and, you know, all word of mouth. Um, and I ended up having uh, a halau. I should take that back. I opened up Kehaulani Hula Studio. And the studio was just honestly for marketing purposes because I found people have no idea what halau is. Other people have an idea of what halau is and other people didn't care what halau is. For those who need a reminder or those who are just joining us for this episode, a halau is the word used for a hula school. So how do, how do I blend these three groups of people? Well, I'll open a hula studio. A hula studio will introduce them to hula but not give them that responsibility of hula. Maybe asking yourself, what is the responsibility of hula? Don't worry, Anakala Pumaikai is just about to answer that question. Uh, the responsibility in hula is the responsibility to oneself first, because if that that is not pono, then the responsibility to other things will not come. Yeah, everything will still be in chaos. Um, but when I say that responsibility is passing of the the ike, all that you know with the hula, yeah, we have the movements that we we're gonna pass on. Hula, there's some hulas that we don't change. Yeah? We don't change. We pass on the same thing. We may take privilege, but we always. Sh make sure that we know this is where it came from. Um, so the students are expected or upheld the, the same regards. You have to know things about this mele, um, whether it's a mele hula, mele oli, or, or just ike. What is it? Um, how, do you, how do you malama those things? Yeah, how do, we sh how do we take care of that so we can pass it to the next generation? The word ike is used here to mean understanding or knowledge. The full definition of ike, again from my new pocket Hawaiian dictionary, is the following. Ike, to see, know, feel, greet, recognize, understand, to know sexually, knowledge, sense, as of hearing or sight or vision. So in other words, ike is to truly know something. For a lot of students, to pass it on to the next generations, they really don't know what that means. And for me, the, that should mean that wherever you can share that ike, then you share. If it's within your family, your kids, your grandkids, then you share the ike. If, <clears throat> sometimes I don't have the best hula dancers, but I try to educate them. So they're an educated hula dancer, 
Me neither. Somebody asked a question. Oh, what is this? I wonder what this hula is about. That person can turn around and say, this is what the hula is about. This is what it means. Um, this is where it comes from. You know, they can add to the beauty of the hula. Somebody else may be dancing, but I can share the, I can share the ike or the background of that particular mele. In ancient Hawaii, hula dancers abided by strict kapu or laws, such as refraining from eating certain food. This rigidity continued on into halau in the early 20th century. I have heard many stories from kapuna about their kumu hula hitting them with sticks and switches when they made a mistake. In teaching his students, Anakala Pomaikai found that he needed to change up his ways a little and not rely on the halau traditions he grew up with. Because, you know, when we were dancing, if Kumu said something, it didn't make sense. You kind of didn't ask questions, you did. And then later on down the road, it's like, that's why he said that. That's why she made me do this. You know, they didn't tell us anything, but that's how we learned. I find sometimes the students are like, what? <laughs> So, so teaching on the continent, I've kind of had to change my mindset too and not expect that what I say they already know or at least know of. I found the opposite that they don't know and don't know anything of. Even though they're Hawaiian, they still kind of are in that same boat. So I try to compare things that um, whatever the nature of the culture there. I try to bring that in as well. As we learned in the last episode with Keikoa Harmon, the hula movements and motions are not meant to match up with every word of the mele or the oli. Additionally, hula movements are grounded in what you can find in nature. To recapture that emotion or that feeling that I'm looking for. Yeah. Not everybody was able to stand at the edge of the water and have the ocean just lap at their, their feet. Yeah or sit down and then all of a sudden a breeze comes by. Oh, did you smell that bakalana? You know, I know I can say, hey, you know when you're standing at the edge of that river and that water is just flowing over your toes? That's just how it feels when you're at the beach. That coldness that you feel, that's what you feel at the beach. Um, I says, if you're in the mountains and the scent comes, but it smells of pine or it smells of sage, those are things that we recognize as scents in, in nature. So all these things you try to pass down and try to make that connection. Um, and I also take them home every two years. I try to, and we go to places that we've danced about, that we chant about, that we may have made dyes. And, and this particular clay came from this particular area. So we would go and so they can see, they can, they can feel, they can smell these things that I'm talking about. So it better gives them an idea, that imagery, um, and then they can put that into the memory banks. So when they, when I say, okay, remember the time we went here? The, oh yeah. Uh, um, and, then, and then they can change the expression and change the mood that, I, that they express in the hula. So the responsibility is always there to make sure that things are pono and always try to remember what is the sacrifice? What is the sacrifice that we're trying to accomplish? So rather than saying, oh, I wish everything is okay today, I'm going to say what I w want to be okay today. Anakala Pomaikai also brings the local surroundings into the adornments that the hula dancers wear. So, so what, what we usually do is we have lay workshops and they bring whatever they found in their yard and then we make lay. And then we kind of see 
what actually works does it last for a couple of days other we go oh it's poison no can use so <laughs> one one girl gave me this lid i'm thinking wow this is interesting and i put it on my head and i said what is this from and she kept telling me i was like yeah the thing that poison <laughs> she goes no only if you eat it i was like well it's kind of close close to the mouth <laughs> But, you know, I said, okay, as long as you don't break out of the rash, then it looks good. You know, so so we do that. We we try to use our resources on the continent rather than phoning home. Hey, can you send me palapalai? Can you send me tea leaves? When this lady, a Navajo lady came and she gave me, she gave me a lei and it had shells in them. And I was like, oh, cute you. You just go put shells inside here. She was like, no, Kumui, I got that from our Aina. I'm like, really? She was there. Then she reminded me that the valley that we live in you know, once was underwater. So she showed me the rock side, you know, the, the different layers. And I said, oh, wow, that was so interesting to me <laughs> to hear about the shells in Utah. So I always make aware of whose Aina is that and I'm just visiting. Yeah. So there are only that you can acknowledge the ancestrals of those lands that are not yours. Um, so, yeah, we do that, too. We always acknowledge those peoples who came before us on those lands. In addition to teaching hula classes, Anakala Pomaika'i also facilitates lei and craft workshops. I try to teach the different techniques of lei making so they know that a haku can be made several different ways and not... Um, it's, it's a matter of fact, some people don't even know how a haku is made. So when I have the ladies learn the different techniques, it kind of, they realize that, you know, it's not easy for one. Two, it, you have to have patience. Three, you gotta make sure you don't have arthritis, you know, stuff like that. The ones that do kind of figure it out. And so, you know, the, the ladies can do vili, they can do hili, they can do humupapa, they can do, they can do hilo style of lays. So they know different techniques of how to make lays. There's this white jasmine plant in, um, that grows in California. And we take those and we, we make them into pseudo maile. And we use raffia. And using these leaves with the, the hili, using the raffia and then adding in this, these le leaves. And by the time they're done, it really looks like maile from far away. So I try to use material that we can find in our backyard. So my ladies in California, we have a kahiko set of lays that we use to do kahiko performances. And it's acorn tops. We just get the acorn tops, drill a hole, and they size it to match their body and string them all together. And from afar, it kind of looks like uh, the half shell kukui nut. So that's what they use for kahiko. Um, Awana, we try to use whatever we can from Flower Mart. We don't go and try not to buy the stuff because, you know, there's so much that we can use. In Utah, we use the the bud of the pine tree. We pick those buds and let it, them dry, and then we string those into lays. And that's what my Salt Lake City group uses for their kahiko lays. And those pine, we, on the wristlets, we use the uh, floral wire. Yeah. They use them to make jewelry, and they're flexible. But we string them on those and then wrap it around our wrists and anklets because it's easier because of how fragile those beads are. I want to take a little pause here and define a couple hula terms 
that you've heard already in this podcast episode. Those terms are awana and kahiko. These two hula terms refer to the two umbrella categories of hula. Kahiko refers to ancient hula. Dancers are usually dressed in traditional hula garments such as pa'u skirts or malos and traditional hula implements are used such as the ipuheke, the pa'u drum. Additionally, these hula are performed in conjunction with ancient oli or chants. Awana refers to modern hula. Dancers are usually costumed in modern western dress such as slacks, aloha shirts, and mu'umu'u, and the hula is accompanied by modern instruments such as slacky guitar and the ukulele, with musicians singing modern mele. I also want to let you know we're about halfway through the episode. Congratulations, we're almost there. Make sure to stay until the end to hear what image Homai Ka'i and I think of when we think of hula. Spoiler alert, it's not the image of a young woman in a grass skirt and coconut bra. Yeah, so the kuleana is 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 there in, in everything that we do in hula that can be applied to our everyday life. Kuleana. We talked about this Hawaiian word in episode one. Strictly speaking, it can be translated into responsibility, but it means more than that. I think a lot of people forget about that because what's the pa hula? They c- check out. They're done. You know, and hula should be constant, 24-7. And once they realize that, you know, yeah, I can make that a part of life. Well, how do you do it? I don't know. You just apply something. Yeah, the calmness that that hula gave you, if you come into a situation that's, that is irritating, maybe I can think about that hula to calm me down. <laughs> maybe I can do that only uh, to put things back into perspective yeah, and then go on with my day. And I've done that too. Like, oh my God, this is too frustrating. Hey, ho, Mike, hi, you know. <laughs> and then I kind of settled down. I was like, oh, okay, thank goodness. <laughs> you know, that's kind of funny that you bring it up because I actually, you know, I'm, I'm still in Boston, so I'm far from my family, uh-huh. you know. And whenever I start to get, a little a little sad or feel a little disconnected i you know i start to incorporate hula back yeah. into my life yeah it's grounding yeah exactly I, I just love that feeling when everything's in chaos you do a simple oli or, or a hula that brings that smile then everything pow everything's like okay okay now I, now I can deal with this. Just moving on, moving on. <laughs> you know, a while back I was, you know, pandemic, you know, everything's so crazy and I'm oh, yeah. hard to deal. Yeah. I started to just get up, you know, as the sun rose and chant ALA. Yeah. And never knew it was such power it had until then. Oh, yeah. And then to do it in Boston, to feel that sunrise or sun rays on your face that just starts to warm the soul. Can't beat it. Yeah, cannot beat it. Well, Hawaiian sun maybe can, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. In episode 2, we talked about how important Olalo Hawaii is to hula. Anakala Pomaika'i also places great importance on Olalo Hawaii for his hula students. When students are doing research, a lot of them are not Olalo. They don't Olalo. They don't speak. They don't know even how to, to put things together. So through hula, it kind of helps them get over those little barriers. And I always have my students have a vocabulary list that has the vocabulary that they know that, you know, if I say pua, they are automatically switch to a flower. If I say noho, they know it's a chair. Now we look at secondary things. Yeah, you know, pua could could be reference uh, a metaphor for a loved one. Noho doesn't only mean sit, but it also means to dwell, you know, to be stationed. So to go through the vocabulary list and put on the other side the vocab that I don't know. And those are the words that I'm going to work on. 
to help build vocab. So, so in other words, if, if they recognize something, then it's a little bit easier to take in. If they don't recognize, they'll skip over it and go to something that they know. And so trying to have them to recognize these things, even though they're not little speakers, they, they can understand a little bit better. And so we go through the Hawaiian alphabet and the Hakalama and, and we try different things. Lately, we've been working on Oli. The Hakalama is a syllabary that was developed and is used in the Aha Punaleo schools. This syllabary is used to teach literacy to young students. There are other uh, Makua or Kupuna. If you're a fan of this podcast, you already know that Kupuna refers to elders. Makua refers to the age group directly beneath the elders, typically parents. There are other uh, Makua or Kupuna, and a lot of them have has taken to Oli over Zoom. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, when I go and meet, we, 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 sh- we took a while sometimes on one Oli. And here we are, we're moving past a couple of Oli, getting past a couple of vo- vocal techniques, getting across a couple of understanding of words and... And so, so that's enlightening, right? So now they're excited about Oli. So, wow, we're doing all kinds of stuff. Costume, we talk about costume. We talk about the kilohana and how we're going to print it. Um, what do you want to say? Is it genealogical? Is it um, hula reference? Is it nature reference? So all these things that they're thinking and talking about now, they're excited about Oli. And I'm thinking, right on. <laughs> because Oli is hard to teach. You know, even in person. And, and for them to know now, hey, can you do a kuolo? Can you do an ii? Can you do a ha'anu'u? And all these stuff. And they, and they know. Kuolo, ii, and ha'anu'u refer to different vocal techniques used in chanting. Some, you know, still are working on it. Others get them. So, so that rejuvenation, again, like I said, it, it just builds and keeps building. And I kind of forgot what the topic we were talking about. But, <laughs> so the excitement. There's always excitement. There's always a dull time, too, in hula. And that's the time where you kind of recap everything that you've been learning to see how come you're in this spot. And then once you find it, it takes off again with that excitement and that joy in learning the hula or the uli or costume making or lay making. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that my earliest memories of hula were from when my grandmother used to take me to practice with her. Those memories are still near and dear to me and definitely sparked my interest at a young age. Anakala Pomaikai told me that he doesn't mind having kids in the classroom. This attitude about children is not true for all halal hula, so make sure you check with your kumu before you bring your kids. But if you're studying with uncle, then he says, bring them. Yeah, because, you know, that's how the younger generation learns. That they come to hula, they may be doing 10 other things, but their ears and thoughts are always connected what, to what they're listening to. Yeah. So you saw Kupuna getting together, but there was things that was starting to make those connections. And my, it happened to my kids. You know, they were always at performances, always at practices. So they knew things without even being a part of it. So the ladies say, oh, I can't come hula because I have to, you know, yeah, bring them, bring them to class. Oh, but they will get loud. I said, you know, I'll school. I said, they go, oh, I said, you know what? They're learning. Yeah. And after a couple of weeks, they'll come back. They go, oh my God, my son know the Oli. I said, well, how do you know that? I said, because I can hear running around the yard chanting. I said, see? <laughs> so practice with him. Yeah. And that's how some dancers come to halal because they come with their mothers and, and, 
they were in school, but now they're looking for dance hula, so they come. You know, my kids, not all of them are dancing though. Some when they were teenagers wanted to do other things. And for me, I let them go because they're always going to come back to hula, you know. So when we do something together, we're all there, they're all hula. But they still remember that muscle memories kicks in. Before we get into what hula is and what hula is not, I want everyone to know that no matter who you are or how old you are, it's never too late to start dancing hula. The only requirements you need, a willing body who can suffer some aches and pains. Because I tell you what, hula's not easy. You get sore legs, especially if you haven't practiced in a long time or if you haven't stretched. But all you need an open mind, a body ready to learn, and a heart full of aloha. So if you find yourself missing Hawaii or wanting to reconnect or to discover something new, try joining a halau or hula studio or Hawaiian Civic Club or whatever. You don't have to be a professional dancer. You just gotta have aloha for Hawaii. I referenced this word earlier, haumana. In my new pocket Hawaiian dictionary, haumana is translated as student, pupil, apprentice. I asked Anakala Pomaikai to define the difference between haumana and someone who just casually dances hula. A dancer can put on a show at a drop of a dime. A haumana, a ha, a, the haumana would take care. Uh, how did I put it? Because even to say a dancer will, will perform at a drop of a dime is kind of kind of harsh. <laughs> People are the uneducated guys. They're, they're performers. That's what they do best. So they'll mimic and perform really well. And those guys are usually the ones that I, I always tell my dancer, oh, he was good or she was good, but there was nobody home. And, you know, my dancers know that they can make mistakes. Not too much, but, you know, they can make mistakes. If they recover from that mistake, I'm good. They made a mistake and they look like a deer in the headlights, I'm not good. Because <laughs> now everybody knows you made a mistake, including me. Yeah, because you drew attention. Oh, my God. And they throw their hands up. <laughs> just like, now, if you just moved on, nobody would ever know that you made a mistake. So, again, the responsibility. Yeah? How, do, how do I recover if I do? How do I make sure that nobody knew I did that? Yeah, one, I could smile the entire time and not look like a deer in the headlights. I just move on. Or I could just simply make a huli and then continue on. So recovery is always important in hula. Um, and you have to be an actor again. You have to have that that, that journey to, to be in the spotlight. Yeah, it's, it's not the kind like, hey, can you dance this? Oh, yeah, 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 I can. Can we do this kind too? It, it might be the kind like, oh, I'm not sure. But as soon as they get up there, it's like, wow, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, because they don't want to be in the spotlight. But once they choose to put themselves there, you know they know what they're doing. The other person that just ran on the stage and started dancing and got off, it's like, oh, all right. Because <laughs> there's, there's no, there's, there was no nothing to, nobody was home in that dancing. There is often confusion about the differences between dance studios that offer a Polynesian dance and halal. Since Anakala Pomaikai has experience with both, I asked him to weigh in. Um, Polynesian dance is like um, a jack of all trades, but master of none. That sounds kind of rude too, but it's like, you know, you're, you're doing all these cultural dances from, from different people and trying to maintain the authentic, authenticity of costuming, of, of uh, phrasing, in music. And I've done, I've done that too. And it's, it, it's exciting because you get to do all these different numbers. I've, I've seen groups that 
were terrible. Because they did all these these Polynesian numbers or uh, a Polynesian review that their crowd, I've noticed, were of a certain ethnicity. And so when I hear a Polynesian review, it goes right back to a Polynesian cultural center setting, uh, the Halekua Hotel setting, the uh, the Moana Beach Hotel setting, you know, those those things that I, I kind of think about. And and so when when I hear, you know, Halau, that's it's again a different thought, a different expectation. So when I see those Polynesian reviews, I really don't have a, a high expectation because I know it's just for tourists. When I know a Halau's performing, then I have certain expectations. When I hear a hula studio is performing, I have different expectations. And I do that only because then I'm not overwhelmed <laughs> with disappointment or or surprise. Yeah, I I you know I think I can I can understand sort of that that sort of different difference in mentality, right? Because I've seen hula performances, you know, quote unquote hula performances, um, like, you know, in, in that sort of like very tourist, like luau sort of, you know, let's put on a show for, for people who not, don't necessarily appreciate hula for its entirety. Right. But then I've also, you know, been able to, you know, see hula by halaos and it's, it's same. It's similar, but it's different. And I think the difference really comes from something that's intangible. You know, that that emotion that we were talking about earlier. I don't know. Sometimes I kind of feel stuck up about it. <laughs> oh, I you know I take it for what it's worth, and if it's entertaining. I enjoy it. Yeah, and yeah, I sing some of those songs too, and I, I enjoy it. If I'm if I'm waiting for a cultural connection, yeah, I'm not going to get it. And that's because of my experiences in the past, and then being a part of it. More so, it's like, yep, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was right. Um, so you know, so so I kind of put those guidelines in, like I said, just not to be disappointed not to be uh, not to be stuck up about it you know I mean if it's entertaining then then yeah I'll enjoy it if it's not entertainment then I'm just gonna be poor things you know because they're not they're probably not all Tahitian they're not all Hawaiian they're not so they're doing a disservice to the culture that they're supposed to be representing and finally, the moment you have all been waiting for. The image that comes to mind for Anakala, Pomai Kai, and I when we think of hula. And then the men, the men you know, it's, it's strength, it's power, um, and that's Kahiko or Awana. Kahiko gets a little bit more screams and hoot and hollering because of the costuming. Um, you know, yeah. And of course, a slow malo, seeing a little tutu go around. <laughs> it's slow. It's, it's exciting for women. Um, you know, same thing when we see a female dancer come out and, and, you know, she just has this hourglass figure. That's wow. But then again, I can always wait for the auntie that will come out with that mu'u mu'u and do those subtle movements or give that flicker of the eye that will just make you melt or just bust out in laughter. 
Yeah, I I know. You know, it's what you're describing. I I I know, right? I I've had these experiences where, you know, we used to have this this member Auntie Ihi, and whenever we did, you know, Pauhana or you know Kani Kapila, she always gets up to dance and. You know, I don't even know if it was the same song, but <laughs> it, it, it was the same sort of movements. But mm-hmm. somehow, every time I w- you're enraptured. Yes, and to he just had that that knack, you know, for leaving uh, your imagination running. Yeah, and she let it run wherever it wanted to go, and she so so yeah, she was. I always enjoyed watching her dance her songs. And again, it brings back so much memories um, from watching Kupuna back in the day, you know, and dancing. So yeah, I love Etihi. You know, I, I enjoy watching um, a Kupuna at 89 years old doing Papalina Lahi Lahi than I would a 20 year old dancing the same number. And that's only because that 89 year old knows the little innuendos, knows the little things that will click something in the, the person that is walking. Yeah? So in other words, he's giving them just a taste of what's, what could come. So now they're on the edge of their seat and you can just see them imagining. Oh my God, when I, when I watch a 20 year old dance, she may give me too much or he may give too much of the, the dance that leaves no imagination for the person watching. Like they put it all out there. Whereas that Kupuna, she didn't. She left something back. So that person wants a little bit more. And I think I always hold that to, to performances. Yeah, you always want the people wanting a little bit more. You don't want them, you don't want the audience going, oh my God, when are they gonna get, be done? Because you gave them everything. Right? So that's sometimes I feel with younger dancers, they like give everything um, and, and, and there's nothing. Uh, whereas Kupuna, they know the subtleties of the, the little innuendos that will get that imagination going. And I enjoyed that a whole much, whole much more. Before we wrap up, Anakala Pomaikai has a message for all of you listening. You know, it's heavy and I think it, it I think there's a simple solution, but because of how our communities are, yeah? It's not a community of Japanese, it's not a community of Hawaiian, it's not a community of Tongan. It's a community of everybody now. And how do we find that common ground um, so we can survive together? You know, we have to go back to our traditional teachings. What did they do in these times? How did they handle this situation? You know, and if we go, if we look back at things that have happened to the Hawaiian people, we know that the community banded together to f- try to figure this out. How do we get rid of this ma'i? Ma'i is the Hawaiian word for illness or disease. Here, Anakala is referring to COVID-19. How do we make sure our people are living, are, are eating healthy, are living healthy? How do we do that? And, and we've, we know that has happened in the past. You know, so currently what's going on is kumuhula getting together again to make sure that people are aware that we can take care of our responsibilities, our palama, yeah? Taking care of our immediates uh, within our reach. How do we take care of these people? Because if they get sick, we get sick as well. How do we take care of that responsibility to make sure they're in, yeah? So we go back to our traditional teachings. You know, our traditional teachings includes all of us. Our kupuna, our makua, our opio, our keiki, and how do we all blend ourselves together? So when people heard that, oh, you know, there's 19 people are living in that house. <laughs> how do they do it? That's because 
we were all in sync as far as how to be pono with one another and what is around us. You heard it from the source. To live hula every day, it starts out with being pono. Pono to yourself, pono to those around you, and pono to your aina. If we can do this, then we can get through it together. If you're still listening, mahalo. You've made it to the end of episode three. In this episode, we learned about hula as it was viewed in the 1970s and 80s, the importance of understanding olelo hawaii or hula, and how to incorporate hula into our life every day by being pono. If you want to follow Pomai Ka'i, you can find him at kehaolanihulastudio.com. Um, I try to list what we're doing there. And I try to update it as much as possible. Um, but that's my my uh, website for the hello. I also do catering at Tarot Patch Catering um, at gmail.com. You can reach me there too. Um, I work with an organization in Utah called Pacifica Enrichment 2 Action Resources, or for short, PICTAR. <laughs> and and that is a, a community-based organization that we try to service all of our community uh, uh, members. And we try to share whatever resources that we have. Every first Monday of the month, I do a cooking show. And the cooking show is just stuff that I cook for my kids or my family. Um, but we try to make them a little bit healthier. We put it out in, in uh, e-form so everybody has a copy. Um, we do it uh, Facebook Live at 6, uh, 6 p.m. Utah time. On the fourth Monday of every month, I do an arts and craft uh, for the same group, again at 6. I'll make sure to link all of these out in the show notes, as well as some other resources about the topics you learned about today. listening. We have one more episode coming out this month to end Asian American Pacific Islander month. So make sure to tune back in and hit subscribe so you know when the next episode drops. And if you're a fan of podcasts, you may hear this a lot, but subscribing and rating on whatever platform you're listening on really does help the podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your podcasts. Mahalo nui loa to my family and friends who have supported me throughout this process and continue to do so, especially to my sister and dad who wrote and performed the music you heard in this podcast. The introduction and transition music were written and performed by Erin McCarthy. And the outro music you're listening to right now was written and performed by Eric Kakihara. And once again, to my ohana and kapuna, thank you for everything you've done for me. This podcast is dedicated to you. My name is Andrea, and you've been listening to State of Aloha. Until we meet again, ahui ho.